Last month, journalist David Spears asked senior Liberal Party frontbencher Linda Reynolds a pretty reasonable question. Do you agree that flexibility in wages and keeping wages at modest levels is a deliberate feature of our economic architecture? No, absolutely not, replied Reynolds. For Bill Shorten to even suggest that, I'm quoting Matthias Cormann, David Spears pointed out. It was a telling moment for the coalition. Their economic message was so out of touch with reality, it had become a caricature of itself. Even one of their senior figures couldn't tell the difference between an actual coalition policy and what she thought was an absurd exaggeration. It didn't need a scare campaign. The policy was a horror show all of itself. When it came to office, the coalition was warning about a wages explosion. Six years on, and wage growth, by some measures, is the lowest it's been since World War II. Workers' share of national income is near a 50-year low. Yet, like a talking greeting card that still keeps on wishing you Happy Christmas in July, Matthias Cormann persists in warning that wage-boosting policies could cause massive spikes in unemployment. And it's pretty clear now that whether wages were growing at 1% or 10%, the Liberals would still be saying it's not the right time to increase wages. Today I want to argue to you that there's really only one party that occupies the centre ground in Australian politics, the Labor Party. When we look at three big policy areas, climate, wages and tax, the Coalition has given up searching for the centre and become a party of pure reaction. The modern Liberal Party is looking increasingly like the party of Kevin Andrews and Tony Abbott, rather than the market-based party of Robert Menzies and Malcolm Turnbull. The Liberal Party of 2019 is abandoning centrist economics with its embrace of rationality, science and markets in favour of a set of surprisingly extreme views. The Liberal Party has adopted what US historian Richard Hofstadter called the paranoid style in which conspiracies abound, crony capitalism flourishes, and diversity is a threat. It's a populist approach to politics that's fearful of experts and internationalism, which urges us to hunker down. At its heart, it's illiberal, which is why the government threatens to become a lino party, liberal in name only. Let's start with climate. In 2007, then Prime Minister John Howard proposed to address climate change using a market-based approach. Two years later, newly arrived backbencher Scott Morrison said, there are a suite of tools we need to embrace to reduce emissions. I believe an emissions trading scheme in one form or another is one of those tools. Placing a price on carbon, as the leader of the opposition has said, is inevitable. Well, that was 2009 and the leader of the opposition was Malcolm Turnbull. We know what happened next, because we've seen the movie twice. Malcolm Turnbull lost the leadership of the Liberal Party. <coughs> the Coalition has now considered and abandoned a dozen different energy and climate plans. As a consequence, emissions and energy prices have been rising since 2014. The strange thing about the Liberal stance on climate is that it's not just grossly out of step with the science, it's perversely out of step with the concerns of the general public and the business community. In January this year, a survey of a thousand global business leaders 
found that climate change was number one on their list of the gravest risks facing the planet. Of all risks, they said, it is in relation to the environment that the world is most clearly sleepwalking into catastrophe. Recent surveys of Australian company directors reached similar conclusions. The Reserve Banks pointed out that continuing climate policy uncertainty poses a risk to macroeconomic stability. Military experts, from the Pentagon to the Australian defence community, recognise that unchecked climate change is a risk to national security. But it's been left to, to Labor to occupy the sensible centre ground. We're committed to cutting pollution by 45% by 2030. We've set a target for 50% renewable energy by 2030. And both those goals are based on the Climate Change Authority advice on Australia's fair, Australia's fair share to achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Accords. Our approach is aimed at, at maximising the chance for eventual bipartisan agreement, investor certainty and the long-term effectiveness of policy. We've consistently offered bipartisanship, and if we're elected on the 18th of May, we plan to offer it again. Bill Shorten said he'll sit down in his first week as Prime Minister and put the Coalition's own national energy guarantee back on the table. Now, we don't think the neg is perfect. We know that des desperate for certainty and a policy that can work, every business group in the country supports it. If that fails, Labor will deliver more renewable energy without the Liberals on board by working with industry to directly support renewable energy investment. We'll modernise our energy networks and link up renewable energy zones to the grid, supported by our $5 billion Energy Security and Modernisation Fund. We'll provide the Clean Energy Finance Corporation with an additional $10 billion of funding over five years for investments to support the transition to a clean economy, including in renewable technology, such, such as a national hydrogen strategy. We'll set a target of a million new household battery storage systems by 2025, and half of all new vehicles being sold being electric by 2030, which, as you might have heard, turns out to be the same uh, target that underpins the government's own modelling. We'll put in place sensible measures to smooth the transition for vulnerable workers and communities, reinvigorate the carbon farming initiative, develop a well-functioning offset market. For big polluters, we'll extend the existing pollution cap and allow for international offsets and potential electricity sector offsets. Those measures aren't radical, they're mainstream. In Britain and New Zealand, the past decades seen Conservative governments implement sensible and effective climate change policies, grounded in solid science and sensible economics. They've shown what's possible when climate change stops being a partisan issue and becomes a national priority. By taking a sensible, tailored and cooperative approach, a shortened government would aim to achieve the same. Now, Let's turn to wages. In February, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe told the House Economics Committee, aggregate household income used to grow at 6%. It's growing at sub three. That's a big difference. When you accumulate that over three or four years, an income is eight, 10, 12% lower than it would otherwise have been. Many people borrowed assuming their incomes would grow at the old rate, and they haven't. They're having more difficulty. They've got less free cash and they can't spend. So that's why I put so much emphasis on the need for a pickup in wage growth. 
For many employees, work's become increasingly fragile. Collective bargaining's on life support. Union membership rates are as low as they've been since 1904. As Maurice Blackburn's own Josh Bornstein's pointed out, a minority of Australian workers now enjoy permanent full-time employment with access to sick leave and holiday pay. Scandals such as the 7-Eleven wage theft scandal have become sadly commonplace. Short-sighted businesses think they can have well-paid customers and badly paid workers. Wise businesses recognise that customers and workers are the same people. A wage rise for middle Australia is just what the economy needs to get retail sales out of the doldrums. That's why Labor's proposed to restore penalty rates and implement a tradie pay guarantee. For Labor hire firms, we'll institute a principle of same job, same pay. And we'll engage with the Fair Work Commission to develop a living wage. From the Coalition, we're yet to see a single wage policy. A few years ago, ago their budget was projecting 3.5% wage growth this year. It's come in closer to 2.5%. Yet, when you look at the budget papers, they're again forecasting 3.5% wage growth. Hope is not a game plan. In the 1970s, we had a consistent period in which wages outpaced productivity. Back then, the sensible centrist position was to acknowledge the real wage overhang and develop policies that brought wage growth back into line with productivity. Within weeks of the Hawke government winning office, Labor held an economic summit with businesses, trade unions, churches and welfare organisations. That consensus helped to sustain the accord with its focus on stability, equity and full-time employment and full employment. Today, we don't have a real wage overhang. Over the past six years, wages have fallen below productivity. It should be uncontroversial to acknowledge Australia has a real wage underhang. The centrist position in Australia is simple. We need a pay rise for middle Australian workers. Finally, let's talk tax. When I was studying public finance, one of my professors was Marty Feldstein, Reagan's chair of the Council of Economic Advisers. Feldstein emphasised the importance of reducing what he called tax expenditures, or what we might call tax loopholes. Doing so, he pointed out, raises revenue more efficiently than increasing tax rates. But because tax expenditures tend to be much less fair than budgetary expenditures, Closing loopholes is also much more equitable than cutting spending. That approach has informed Labor's philosophy on tax over recent years, as our economic teams made a number of politically challenging decisions to close loopholes. We'll prospectively restrict negative gearing to new-built homes. Ensuring that particular tax concession helps add to housing supply will prospectively halve the capital gains tax discount from 50 to 25%. To address unfair income splitting, trust distributions to adult beneficiaries will attract a minimum tax rate of 30%. For people who don't receive a pension or an allowance, we'll end cash refunds of dividend imputation credits for people who paid no tax. In the company tax system, we'll prevent multinationals using excessive debt deductions to unfairly lower their tax burden. Firms doing, doing business in a tax haven 
will have to now disclose it to their shareholders as a material tax risk. To listen to the Coalition describe Labor's tax plans, you'd think they're the end of the world. In January, the Prime Minister issued veiled threats that a Labor win would plunge the economy into recession. Since we had that per capita recession, he seems to have stopped making that particular claim. But still, we should expect plenty more hyperventilating hyperbole between now and the 18th of May. How do we judge the sensible centre on tax? Well, one starting point is to look at accounting firm KPMG's post-budget analysis released last week. They plot the tax to GDP ratio for Australia, and they show that since 1990, the figure has fluctuated between 20 and 25%. The highest tax to GDP ratio in the past generation was under the Howard government. The lowest tax to GDP ratio in recent decades was under the Rudd government. At the end of the graph, KPMG shows two futures. The government's planned trajectory and an alternative trajectory that assumes Labor wins and all our tax policies are enacted. And there's barely a whisker of difference between them. Under Labor, KPMG projects the tax to GDP ratio to still remain below its level in the Howard era. Another approach is to look internationally. KPMG compares Australia's tax to GDP ratio with 19 other advanced countries. We come in fourth lowest in the group. As they sum up the result, recent OECD and IMF data suggest that Australia's government revenue levels are towards the lower end of the range achieved by comparable countries. Only Ireland, Korea and the US have a lower tax to GDP ratio. Japan, New Zealand and Britain have considerably higher tax ratios. In Belgium, Denmark and France, the tax take as a share of the economy is one and a half times larger than it is in Australia. KPMG then re-estimate the figures, assuming a Labor victory with all of our tax policies enacted. Australia's ranking doesn't change. We remain the fourth lowest taxing of the 20 advanced nations in the pack. The more you look at the coalition's fear campaign on tax, the more it begins to unravel. Australia is unique in the world in providing cash refunds for dividend imputation credits. Removing these payments brings Australia in line with every other country on the planet. No one will lose a dollar of their superannuation. No one will pay a dollar more tax. Pensioners won't be affected. And similarly, Labor's negative gearing policies bring Australia into line with places such as Britain and the United States which do not allow taxpayers to deduct investment losses from their wage incomes. Those changes don't affect existing incomes, existing investments, which are fully grandfathered. Reform of this kind was advocated by Joe Hockey in his valedictory speech. And likewise, Labor's trust reforms build on changes instituted in the early 1980s by boy treasurer John Howard to avoid the abuse of trusts for income splitting purposes by children. Hardly ra radical stuff. With net debt having doubled since 2013, Labor believes that high income earners should make a greater contribution to paying down debt. It's why we'll restore the top marginal tax rates to the level that Tony Abbott put in place from 2014 to 2016. In the Coalition, we sometimes hear that top tax rates are so punishingly high that entrepreneurs won't locate in Australia. 
Yet the figures last year showed that Australia attracted 7,000 millionaire migrants, the highest figure of any country in their study. Singapore, despite having a top marginal tax rate that's half of ours, attracted one-seventh as many millionaire migrants. Going back to Tony Abbott's top marginal tax rates won't change the fact that Australia is a highly attractive destination for highly paid workers. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Choosing Openness about the rise in populism and the risk it poses to globalisation, to internationalism, to engagement. In an environment of rising inequality and rapid technological change, populists can prosper by telling voters that the answer is to hunker down in the face of difference, rejecting the benefits of trade and migration and foreign investment. But populists reject the idea of challenging choices and tricky trade-offs. They'd rather inflame than inform. As satirist Henry Mencken pointed out, there's always a well-known solution to every human problem, neat, plausible and wrong. As our political opponents become increasingly shrill and extremist, the challenge for Labor is to recognise that we can't fight firebrands with fire. Angry politics is more likely to fuel populism than to stem its rise. When the facts are on your side, there's no need for exaggerated evidence or character assassination. Labor can draw on our unity and consistency over the past six years, a period of policy development unrivalled in recent Australian history. While the coalitions had more reshuffles than a casino card dealer, <laughs> Labor's used stability to build a long-term economic agenda. Today I've spoken about just a fraction of that agenda. Climate, wages and tax are important, but so is our cancer plan, our early childhood reforms, and our competition agenda. I'm excited by our commitment to better engage with Asia, for constitutional reform, and to expand university places. Our policies reflect the sensible centre in Australian public life. They're fully costed by the Independent Parliamentary Budget Office and developed in close consultation with business, community groups, unions and experts. Labor is prepared for government and we are ambitious about the future for Australia. Thanks very much.